0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Gustafson is an organizational design consultant who has worked with more than 60 high-growth companies in 42 countries, accruing more than 13 million frequent flyer miles, spending more than three years of his life on a plane. Some of his clients include American Express, AT&T, BP, Exxon, and GE, among others. And for 40 years, he has served as the president of Organization, Planning, and Design, Inc. Paul is the author of three books, Running Into the Wind, a team of leaders, and the power of living by design, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and Fortune Magazine. Since 1992, Paul has served on the advisory board of BYU's Marriott School of Management, and in 1999, Paul won the William G. Dyer Distinguished Alumni Award, which is the most prestigious award given by the Marriott School's OLS department. To put that in context, another award recipient was Stephen Covey. I hope you enjoy learning from Paul Gustafson today, because I always do. Paul it's so great to have you on the podcast today. If I had to name the one person who has had the greatest impact on me choosing to complete my PhD in organizational behavior, I would have to say it is you. So it's great to be able to talk with you about some of these topics today.
1: Well, it's uh it's a, a a privilege for me to be here and and there's no question that from early on when i first met you the love that you have for learning applying sharing and improving is just so impressive and we can get into that but you know from the early days of of what you learned and then you just went out and applied it and you've had a whole career of that so it's a it's a joy for me to watch your progression and to be invited to be in this prestigious uh, podcast
0: well, yeah, you mentioned, you know, when we met and, and I'll take us back a little bit. So uh, I'm playing at BYU. Uh, I, I walked on in 2004. We had just kind of a, a terrible season where uh, we didn't make it to a bowl game, third straight losing season. And there had been multiple arrests for some pretty terrible things. And, and the program was just kind of a mess. So Bronco Mendenhall takes over the program and within kind of lightning speed, He gets that program into shape. So 2005, his first year, we go to a bowl game, 2006 through 2010. uh, We win at least 10 games every season, make it to a bowl game for 11 straight seasons. This is now going on, continuing with Bronco after I left the program, of course. But this is all relevant because I was there in the beginning when Bronco took over. And I was watching all of these design choices that he made, and he was turning the football program into a business. I was taking business class at the time and organizational behavior was one of my favorite classes. And I'm watching all of these business principles get implemented. And then one day he says, uh, hey, leadership council, I was on leadership council, he says, you need to uh, you know, come here to my office at one o'clock or whatever, and you're gonna meet with Paul Gustafson. And so we had a meeting with you. And what I realized in that moment was that you were, uh, in your to use your words, the coach's coach. You were the one helping Coach Mendenhall implement those business principles, and from that moment on, I just really saw the value in organizational behavior and what you were doing to help Coach Mendenhall.
1: Well, that you know, and let me just sort of piggyback on that that experience. When uh, one of the one of the great privileges in my life was I had the opportunity to walk on as a return missionary uh, to the BYU football team. I was the first one to walk on, make the team in letter under Lavelle Edwards, legendary coach, incredible uh, person to learn from. So the privilege of of giving back to Bronco uh, when he took over, I had I had said uh sent a note that i would uh, i would be interested in helping out i think he said he had 165 different offers of the folks and and tom Holm said hey here's somebody you ought to call and so he called up and and Ann answered and he said i'm the new head football coach i i want to talk to paul and he said he's not here but you know you can talk to him on such and such a day and when he talked to me he uh he said i'm the new head football coach which i knew And, and he said uh Said I've been a very good defensive coordinator, and I want to be a, a, a great head football coach. And I heard you're somebody I could learn from. So I said, "Wow, teachable that." So you know, one of the concepts that Lavelle had was that he had these team councils, and so as a suggestion to to Bronco, you know, have this leadership council which you were a part of. And and the amazing thing about Nate. Uh, one of the things that I teach and we'll, we'll talk about is organizations are perfectly designed to get the results that we get. And uh, one of the things that uh, Bronco had come to me one day and he said, you know, you, you, you teach about organizations being perfectly designed to get the results that they get. He said, we have a terrible, terrible um, special teams. And I. And I don't know what to do. What, uh, what What? What? would you have? So I said to him, Nate, I said, well, so who owns special teams? And he said, well, we all do. No, I said, no, who owns special teams? I actually played on special teams when I was at PYU. PYU and I love playing on it because I got to play, but it was not. <laughs> I said, uh, he said, well, I guess the coaches do. I said, yeah. So, and, and how, how are the players selected to be on special teams? He said, he said, well, um, the coaches choose them. I said, so, and the schemes that are developed, who, who does that? He says, well, the coaches do that. I said, so who actually owns special teams? He said, well, I guess the coaches do. I said, but who should own special teams? He said, the players. So I said, what do you think you could do to get the players engaged? And the epiphany went to his mind. He said, you know, on the playground where we all learned, you know, you you had a couple of captains, they chose the players and, and you know, you got up and you you were on the team. And I said, I just smiled. I said, yeah. So, so he went and he selected four great captains and you were one of those two great captains and and. I think you had some great elaborate process, uh, like uh, like the NFL draft, where you drafted uh, players and people cheered to be on the. T- <laughs> you know, here's something that the Suicide Squad and all this other stuff that wasn't what people, except me, you know, wanted to be on, and you wanted to be on that, and and you chose your players, and that when you reviewed the film, that you rated the players. And, and- and can I just
0: interrupt there? Because it, it, when I was a junior, Paul, uh, <clears throat> I had been the punt returner, and there were 10 other guys on the team, on the punt return team, and there were a couple guys that I would watch every time that would literally block no one, and they were <laughs> still on the team week every week, and so every week their guy is coming down free, and I've got to make him miss, and, and nothing ever happened to them. So that's why I thought I better actually have some accountability here, and we're actually going to watch every player and every player and grade them.
1: Yeah, that's, and you were great. You, you modeled what good looked like, you know, and I, I talk about that in, in my book, a team of leaders is, is you were a great example. So I, 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 again, early on, I saw, you know, your, your love for learning, your love for, uh, applying immediately what it had, you know, and then sharing and, and improving. So that's, uh, what a a great connection. So I've loved seeing your career progress. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to talk through uh, some of your frameworks today. And maybe before we jump in, if you just want to share some of the companies that you've worked with. So of course, you've you've consulted with Bronco Mendenhall for uh, almost 20 years now. Um, But if you want to share some of the other companies, well-known companies that people know of that you've worked with, and maybe describe uh, the number of frequent flyer miles that you've accumulated over the years.
1: (laughs) I I should say we uh, also, to just close the loop on uh, on special teams, we went from worst to first.
0: Yes, yes. And like 96th nationally to top 20 and first in the conference. So yeah, great point. Yeah,
1: great point. Oh, I've been blessed. Uh, uh, sort of, uh, if I could tell a little bit about uh, the background, if I may. In, yeah. in terms of, so, so I grew up in the Midwest, uh, Overland Park, Kansas. Great place for for people to grow up. You're you're familiar with that area. Uh, my father worked for AT and My mom worked. Uh, uh, she was a nurse. I realized at a very young age that whatever happened at work came home. So, when the vocational counselor at uh, at my high school uh, said, what do what do you want to study? I said, I want to help create great places for people to work. He said, Why? He's, he said, I realized that whatever happens at, at work came home with my parents. If it was good at work, things were good. Let's let's go hit some golf balls. Let's go do this. Mom, you want an apple pie? If uh, if it wasn't good, it was I. Why isn't the yard mode How come the kids, uh, your siblings aren't uh, taken care of? It? you know, and so I was thinking, this is my same parents. Mm-hmm. So something happened at work. So I said to the vocational counselor, you know, I'd, uh, I'd like to help create great places for people to work. He said, he said, no, I was talking about, do you want to be an accountant, an engineer, a police officer? Uh, so I went off to school and played uh, uh, football at a, a junior college, Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho, had his scholarship there. And met with the counselors and I said the same thing and they said well we have this great thing general education credits take that and then you'll figure out what you add so I I went two years to Brazil on a mission came back walked to, you know went to BYU and and same sort of thing it was like nobody knew you know the 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 you know the college or the study to help create great places for people to work but you know I had a privilege of I played for three Hall of Fame football coaches: uh, Mike McCormick, who was uh, NFL uh, Hall of Fame; he was my ninth grade coach. Um, uh, Dick Purdy was a high school coach at Shawnee Mission West, six-time state champion, and then LaBelle Edwards. So I I, I had learned something about uh, about great leadership uh, from these uh, these men. It was an incredible thing. So it wasn't until I was a senior, I took a class in complex organizations. I said, "Oh my gosh, this is this is what I I want to I want to learn." we and he said, "Well, there's a brand new program called organizational behavior, in the in the school of management." I went over and visited with uh, Bill Dyer, who had, was one of the co-founders and uh, was the department chair. and And I, I said, "I want to. This is what I want to do." And he said, "He said, well, this is the kind of program that helps." people understand what uh, what we get through design and so um, I was grateful that they let me in. I think I was a diversity student because I was a football player Um, uh, for the the group that was uh, was selected to be in that program I probably had the lowest GPA although it was one of the highest on the football team but that wasn't (laughs) saying much back in those days so Uh, I've been grateful ever since for for that. So I spent nine years inside organizations, energy companies, uh, Standard Oil of Indiana. And and then um, after three horrible winters in Chicago, uh, uh, my wife, uh, who grew up in Hawaii, said, uh, you know, uh, do people that have degrees like yours, do they ever work in warm climates? nice places to work, <laughs> and knowing that, that a happy wife is a happy life. I uh, get a phone call during a whiteout, said, would you like to work for a startup company in Silicon Valley? And uh, I looked on the, there was no internet, it was the newspaper, and said it was 70 degrees in March and, and Silicon Valley. And I went out and interviewed with Dr. Federico Fijin, who invented the microprocessor at, at Intel, and he said he described what they were trying to do in terms of the this startup organization that was funded by Exxon, um, and and so I had the privilege of working with you know uh, high tech and energy inside, and then for the last uh, you know the last thirty eight years I've I've had my own practice organization planning and design Inc. and and during that period of time like you ask i've had the privilege of working with fortune 500 companies and and uh, fortune 100 uh, at t american express um uh ge uh, uh exxon standard oil of indiana Pins oil um uh colgate palmolive uh, bristol Myers Squibb, um you know a whole laundry list uh, on my linkedin of, of or great organizations but the most exciting thing in, when in working with these um, was working on projects that were new, uh, new projects. Nate, uh, these big organizations wanting to do something, wanting to innovate in some way, and and asking for help in terms of so so how do we how do we think about this? So I've had the privilege of working with. Over 70 fast growth organizations who go from a few to to many, and and uh, both as as part of large organizations and also uh, private equity owned uh, and invested. So I've been blessed. With that, I've I have 13 million frequent flyer miles. Uh, 42 different countries I've worked in 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 the world. I've w- worked in Australia on projects with uh, BHP and, and others, uh, uh, Europe. Uh, so it's I've been blessed with great projects and incredible people to work with. And uh, so hope that so, kind of a little bit of a background.
0: Yeah, with that background, that history, uh, you end up contacting Bronco and he ends up contacting you and, and saying he'd like some help. So maybe it would be most helpful if we just uh, walk through one of your frameworks that you help Bronco think about, you know, he's got this, this company, essentially this organization that he needs help with coming to you for help. So how do you think about helping him and what sort of process do you use? Not just with him, but with many of your companies as, as you try to help them go from good to great, as the popular book says.
1: Yeah. So great question. And uh, I love the question. Uh, uh, One of those people who had a huge influence on my life was uh, Ned Herman. Ned Herman had worked at uh, GE for many years, was responsible for their training and development of leaders at Crotonville. And and, uh, he recognized that people... Uh, who were in a workshop some people would walk out of a workshop and say boy that was the greatest thing I ever heard and other people would walk out of the workshop and say I just didn't get it so he realized that this is the same information being presented in the same way that there must be something going on in terms of the processing center in the brain in terms of this and so so he did some of the pioneering work that you're familiar with in in terms of thinking about uh, thinking and learning preferences and the Four different quadrants of that. He taught me that that a metaphor was an impeccable test of understanding. That one of the three strongest facilitators of long-term memory. He said that significant emotional experiences, music, and a metaphor are sort of that uh, perfect storm. The the trifecta of, of if you want people to remember. And and so I thought about the the most impressive. Uh, story as a young man growing up that I had was and my favorite story was David and Goliath and the the story I guess I've always been one who's rooted for the underdog so to speak and as many of us have and the, the part of the story that that resonated with me Nate was was the notion of going to a small brook and selecting five smooth stones so we have no record in terms of how many of the smooth stones that he used with his slingshot, but we do know what happened, right, in terms of the story and the victor and, and that. So I, in my work with these great organizations and leaders, I, I've, I've thought, so what, what would be the five smooth stones that I could provide for great leaders as they're thinking about doing something special? And so what i I did, and and what I still do is I, I talk about five smooth stones. And in many cases, I give people five smooth stones so they can look at that. But the first smooth stone, first smooth stone that I, I talk about in an organization, is about strategy, is about strategy. And just telling the why is that smooth stone? Um, Again, I had this wonderful privilege of being a part of the organizational behavior graduate program at Brigham Young University and studying and being the teaching and research assistant for Bill Dyer. Bill Dyer is known as the father of team building is one of the pioneers, as you know, in the in the field of organizational behavior. And what I realized, Nate, is that you you could have a do a great team building session with your team. But if you went back into the work setting and the organization didn't have a good strategy, it, it was for not, right? If you didn't have a good strategy. And so so I said, I want to learn as much as I can about strategy. So strategy is my first smooth stone. And, and strategy has uh, several components to it. Uh, I was greatly influenced by uh, Michael Porter's work. Uh, many years ago, wrote what I consider to be the preeminent article, Harvard Business Review article, just simply titled, titled What is Strategy? And in that article, he, he simply said that, that strategy is about creating competitive advantage, and the only way that you create sustainable competitive advantage is by doing either similar activities differently or different activities that create value. He said, uh, doing the same thing that other people do and just doing it better isn't strategy. He said, that's uh, operational excellence, but it, it, it's not what truly differentiates you. And so so I was intrigued with this, this notion, saw it play out earlier with working with incredible people like uh, Dr. Federico Vagin, who's in the Inventors Hall of Fame and other great leaders that I had. So... So thinking about strategy and and this, uh, um, I've I've sort of articulated in terms of an organization's strategic intent statement. What are the things that guide the organization directionally? And so those components in, in, include the the mission or purpose of the organization. What is our vision that we have? Um, the, what Michael Porter helped me with in terms of thinking about in others is, is marketplace positioning and uniqueness. And so metaphorically, I, I think of a, a, a cube and, and the cube kind of says, there there are lots of opportunities in this, if, if it was a three by three or four by four, or whatever it is, is so what's your space? and And what your space is, is saying, what do you say yes to? And what do you say no to? And, and Porter emphasized that, it, products and services. What, what are we going to do? What are we going to say yes to? What are we going to say no to? Um, customers, who are, we gonna, who are we going to attract? Who are we saying yes to? Who are we saying no to? And then the channel to, to, to create demand, how, do, how does that come about? And then in your chosen space, what is it that you're going to do unique or, or, or different than anybody else that you have? So it's sort of four really important questions uh, because the principle is that there are more opportunities than there are are resources. And focused resources do much better than unfocused. So then thinking about principles that that are going to guide you. uh, Great leaders talk about, I teach my people correct principles and they govern themselves. So what are those principles that do that? What kind of culture that you want to have what are the attributes that are really important and then what do you want to measure in terms of balance scorecard in this particular case as you said with with uh, bronco i gave him this article uh, what is strategy and uh, my first time meeting with him i came in Nate and and thinking i wonder if the, i wonder if he even took time to read the article and and we sit down in the conference room he pulls this article out that he's, he's he's copied, he's printed out, and it's highlighted, yellow highlights, things written in the corners, re- written in the corners, all these ideas I said, oh, my gosh, this is something special. And so um, every time I met with Bronco, and it's hundreds of hours that I met with him over 17 years, uh, 11 years at BYU and and, and six years at, at Virginia, and continue, every time we're talking about uh, wh- what, how to differentiate. What is it that we can do different or uh, similar activities that we could actually do different or different activities? And you illustrated one of those in terms of the team members being a, a captain of a team, selecting people, grading people, all of that. So I would really admonish, um, as I work with uh, organizations over, over these four decades, is is constantly thinking about um w- w- how could we differentiate ourselves uh, not by doing the same thing better uh, yeah you have to do you know you have to do what industry standard is but what are the few things the 15% 15 20% things that you could actually do different or differently so that that's sort of the first smooth stone is is really helping organizations think about how they're going to differentiate and building a foundation of of great principles. You, you've read Built to Last, uh, Good to Great, the uh, principles. You know, there's there's a lot of evidence about those five or six categories that I talked about. But that that's really smooth stone number one is, and I love talking about it.
0: So when I first started my PhD program. I read this book called Transfer of Learning. And the idea for Transfer of Learning is that we're really bad at taking learning from one domain. Excuse me. We're really bad at taking learning from one domain and applying it in a new domain. And so we have a hard time transferring the learning. So for example, you learned the importance of metaphor. Well, most of us then have a hard time taking that and actually applying it to a new domain. And what I love about you, you talk about, you know, actually taking things that you learn and applying them, you learn the importance of metaphor and then you create metaphors, your entire framework. You know, we've had, uh, I don't know how many dozens of hours we've met uh, with different companies over the last 10 years. Uh, Every time you teach a new principle or a new idea, there is always a metaphor associated with it that helps people understand it. So I've just been impressed with you and your ability to create great metaphors, and and so I always have loved this five smooth stones metaphor. And in terms of strategy, we were just working with a company a couple of weeks ago, and and talking about their strategy, and uh, I was intrigued to see Apple. Uh, what is it they 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 say no to thousands oh. of products and opportunities, and focus on you know the the four or five. And so, so much of strategy, yeah, it's it's about what you do. Uh, but as you said, there are so many more opportunities than resources. So, so much of strategy is figuring out what you say no to, so you don't say yes to everything.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and we all love the story of of uh, Steve Jobs when he came back to Apple, right? We've we've read his book. There are 150 different projects, 15 different platforms, and and he said we're going to do four things. Yeah. And I think those four things have paid off pretty well for.
0: <laughs> you know, one of my uh another book that I read that was really interesting was written by Peter Thiel. He was, uh, you know, a venture capitalist there in Silicon Valley. Uh he was the first outside investor into Facebook. He wrote a book called Zero to 1 and in that he encourages companies to uh basically it, the, the the goal for a company is to have a monopoly to cr- to compete in a space where you can't have a monopoly and he says you know you contrast that with, for example the airlines where it's so cutthroat and you're constantly having to slash every sort of profit margin just to stay afloat. And one of the interesting ideas that uh, he shared from that book that, that always stuck with me was he said he doesn't hire athletes. And the reason he doesn't hire athletes is because athletes want to compete. They want to fight. They want to go to the most competitive place possible. And basically the way I, you know, kind of uh, translating this into your language, they want to really focus on operational efficiency. Now, of course, working hard and and being efficient in operations is important, but that is not strategy. That is something entirely different. And and so I think to your language, Peter Thiel has said, your strategy needs to be doing similar activities differently or different activities altogether so that you can really have a valuable company rather than just compete endlessly on operational efficiency.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very well. And we all know that the, the story of Southwest airlines where, where they, everybody boards a plane, right? But, but they said, let's, let's board it differently. And, they cut down what was the average of I think 55 minutes to turn around a plane to 25 minutes, and as you said, that they built a whole bunch of things like the flight attendants were cleaning planes and before the before you got off the plane, to to do that they they had electronic tickets that they had so they like you said they they combined a whole a whole number of things to have the to do that experience differently which changed the game right they they could fly one more flight a day because of that asset utilization was was less costly they could offer cheaper prices they could get more people you know on and on just reinforcing your point
0: they all they only fly one plane
1: yeah 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 yeah
0: okay so anything else you want to share in terms of I, I mean you know this is this is tough for us because we could probably spend you know five to 10 hours on each of these smooth stones. But in terms of, of keeping the interview moving along, I guess the goal is, you know, hour, hour and a half for this episode. Uh, anything else you'd want to share on strategy before we move to smooth stone number two?
1: I, I think that, you know, I, I I think what I would just say is, is what's really important is, is you have a framework for strategy. You know, and and we've talked about the 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 notion. It, it, if you think about it, a checklist. You know, do I have a compelling mission that that in, in, <clears throat> engages hearts and minds? People remember it. Is it something? And, and we've all seen that where they say, "Oh my gosh, thank goodness I work for this company because they do this." you know, and the vision of where we have, you know, the good book says where there is no vision the people perish. The The notion of being able to see the future, knowing what your marketplace positioning and uniqueness is, being very clear about the culture that you think will differentiate you. And one of the components that you just talked about was having have a learning-oriented uh, culture and one that shares knowledge with one another. And then being crystal clear about the principles that will guide you, you know, th- th- to be a principle-based organization versus a rule-based organization. For every rule, you have to have enforcement. For every enforcement, you have to have enforcers. And there's this cost that's associated with being a rule-based, where, where being principle-based, people it aligns people and then having a balanced scorecard. If if you If you know these are the components, and then you work with what you and I have been talking about in terms of so what's the difference? What what is it that we we can do to differentiate, and how does all that align together? Oh my gosh, great things happen. So,
0: and if I remember right, you spent how much time with Bronco on on just strategy before you ever really kind of dove into the other smooth stones?
1: The hours and hours. I mean, I I think we've we've spent you know I don't know. 2 or 300 hours to together but uh at least on this particular one he he understood this before we went to any of the others so it wasn't hundreds of hours but you know it was tens of hours so
0: yeah great okay uh smooth stone number 2
1: so that smooth stone number 2 is that all organizations have processes um, this was one of the great experiences in my in my life. Uh, I, I mentioned to you um, cold winters in Chicago. Although I was getting on places and going to warm warm places, uh, Houston, Texas, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, other places in Cretean was shoveling snow. But I I had the privilege of coming and working for Doctor Federico Fijin. I mean, I, I imagine in a lifetime to say I got to work with the guy who invented the microprocessor, you know, uh, inventors Hall of Fame, so many other things he invented and and uh, incredible. But he said to me, uh, Nate, he said, um, in interviewing me and and talking later, he said, um, we've developed this eight bit microprocessor, the Z80, which is still enormously popular today, even after all of these decades, he said, uh, but in if you if you can't make enough of these for your customers, they'll go choose somebody else. Intel's, Motorola's, AMD's, whatever, whatever other. So the biggest challenge we have is we have to we have to build a new facility and we're going to choosing to build it outside of the valley here. And we have to get it up and going and be productive and, and get better results than anybody ever does. And he simply said, Nate, he simply said, uh, what I know is if we do the same thing everybody else does, we're just going to get the same results. So we need to we need to do something different. And that's <laughs> that's what I'm I'm hiring you to do and help. And <clears throat> so I, I surrounded myself with some incredible people, to, uh, Jim Taylor, who had taught at UCLA. Um Herb Stokes, who was one of the pioneers at uh, Procter & Gamble in terms of work innovation. John Cotter, who taught at, uh, at UCLA. Um, a, a number Bill Veltrop, who had worked at Exxon. Uh, incredible people. But One of the concepts that, that caught me was this notion of being process-centric, or what they talked about in terms of socio-technical system design, is that uh, state change. And so let me d- d- explain what this is. When I when I went to learn uh, about making a good microchip, when I went to uh, learn about making a good microchip, um, what I learned was that there were 160 steps, 160 steps, took six weeks to do. Um, there were eight plus different departments, The product went back and forth between these different departments 43 times. They measured people on on movements. Um, When I went to the cafeteria, people who worked in a particular discipline, if it it was engineers or maintenance, they just sat by their own people. There was no, no intersection. Nobody actually talked in the name of the product. No nobody talked about, they were talking about moves and wafers and and all of this kind of stuff. And so, so hearing about this technology, socio technical system design, which looked at processes, it 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 started with the notion of 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 having a having a, a wafer. Having having a a, a a wafer. And so this is this is a, a wafer. And, and on top of that wafer in these little, little diagrams that, that you will see is that's the chip. And we know that because our phones have them, our computers have them, microwaves have them everything that we have, has it. And, and, and the notion was so so how do you go from, from a raw wafer in, in terms of and create a, a, a microchip. And so Knowing this, this technology that about state change and state change comes from there is there is uh, matter is neither created nor destroyed; it just changes its state. We know that energy, you know, if you've been to the Epicot Center, there's a deal that talks about the different different forms that energy has. Uh, I work with a, a company um, that takes plastic bottles and melts them down and creates uh, fuel from that. Well, they just change the state from a solid to this. So what we did was we we identified the state changes associated with making good microchips and they are, I'm oversimplifying, but uh, creating transistors, connecting transistors together, protecting transistors and singulating the transistors. And so, so rather than these, these multiple TAR departments, what we did was we put the skill sets together, maintenance, engineering, photolithography, diffusion, all of that into a team that was responsible for creating transistors. And the next team downstream then connected those with with the same expertise, you know, maintenance, engineering, operations, uh, uh, technicians, quality, that sort of thing. And they could measure the quantity, quality, cost, and timeliness of the product. And they saw the next one downstream. And they had the next one downstream. Four different teams that, that they were clear. And, and they all talked in the language of the product. And because they could all talk in the language of the product, they were more self-managing. That There was the, the cost of coordination going across to all of these different departments was taken out. A third of that cost was gone because the team knew... Exactly what it did. Well, Nate, the the measures that they they have is that how many of the the wafers do you start actually have good products in it, you know? And so seventy uh, percent was the industry average. How many how many good microchips were on that? Twenty five percent was the industry average way back when. I'm talking a long time ago, and and turnover in the industry, as you can imagine. Uh, uh, at range between 55 and 100 percent turnover because people didn't connect they went just to uh, somewhere else for this and and the cost was three dollars and something well uh, what we did in that great people in designing teams around the conversion process what we call processes today um they created a 255 percent performance improvement. Wow same 160 steps, same pieces of equipment just organizing people differently but around the product. And so so what I'm saying is the second smooth stone, which was an incredible learning is to be process centric. Now for for those listening they might say well what what, what was the prominent well the prominent was Frederick Taylor's notion that you could break uh, work down into like a machine. Right. And, and people, because they weren't reliable, they would be responsible for only a piece of of this. And so it was a machine like uh, orientation that it has to now being a process centric. So so this has just changed my uh, was just such a uh, uh, an innovation to say uh, uh, that let's look at the processes and and for those processes who owns those processes so um one of the great stories if if you don't mind in in terms of bronco minenhall when i i worked with him we we identified 11 processes which you're very familiar with in terms of uh, football you know there's the, there's the fall camp and there's the there's the special teams and and there's service projects and if you remember your leadership council, what we did was we had individuals who were responsible for each one of those. Well, when I first met with Bronco and his his coaches, and uh, I we were in the, the team room and we I put on the board, you know, the 11 different processes. And I said, so who owns these? Silence. Said, Silence. And Bronco said, well, i guess i do who owns this process silence i guess it's... so they all worked in those processes but nobody owned those and if nobody owns it the top guy owns it right so the notion uh simply is is what what are the processes that you have and then uh, and being able to define those processes in using the sort of the state change state change in simple language is that if you have a wa- if you have ice and you add heat to ice it turns into water if you have water and you add heat to it it turns into steam the simple uh, analogy again uh, you mentioned that i love i love having analogies or examples is think of a bakery think of a bakery somebody comes in as a a wedding or something special and, and they want to have something made. And so you convert the need into an order, state change. Now it's an order. You take the order and you do a, pro- a procurement process and you have raw ingredients. You take the raw ingredients, so you mix it up and you have batter. You take batter and you heat it and it becomes a cake. You take a cake and you decorate it and it becomes a decorated cake. You take that decorated cake and you package it. You have a packaged cake. You take that and you deliver it. You have a delivered cake and then you invoice and and you receive payment and cash applicant. So any organization can be made up of processes. We just don't think that way. And so one of the great um, tools and competitive advantages, I think is, is helping organizations become process centric and, and identifying, identifying ownership for those, And then having five or six tools on how to improve those processes, like getting rid of non-value-added work, categorizing the work, not all work is created equal, knowing what's your competitive work versus your business essential and and compliance work, Um, looking at where the variability is in the process and and controlling that at source, uh, minimizing constraints that you might have. So sizing properly. So this is just such a huge uh, opportunity area that that we have but it was this simple experience way long time ago thinking about you know so how do you make a microprocessor and and just changing changing the the whole paradigm of thinking to rather than if you imagine individuals who are going home and talking to their family or Friends and said, "Well, how many movements did you get in today?" As as opposed to that, they they went from seventy uh, percent of the wafers having good products to ninety six percent. From twenty five percent being functional to fifty percent, to being a cost of three dollars and twenty five cents to a dollar something, and turnover. Uh, Nate went from fifty five. Plus percent to six in, percent, incredible, and and this is repeated over and over again in in, in a variety of industries. So, um, so that's smooth stone number two. Just it, it's a whole lot. It's a, a whole semester, or it could be a whole college d- degree on on thinking about processes and improving processes. So,
0: I think it's so interesting. You you reference Frederick Taylor and. Uh, you know, he had a theory of work, and it was basically the assembly line, right? Where you just own your little tiny piece, and you don't have ownership over the entire product, and that is not motivating, and it is not fulfilling. Uh, as as I was as you were describing processes, I had a memory that you were um, you'd done some work with the uh, LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints. In was it redesigning? Their temporal affairs and, and was that work done around identifying processes and improving them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One, one of the blessings of our life, Chris Ann and mine, is the opportunity to give back and 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 be a church service missionary for the presiding bishopric and, and the human resource department. And and so the simple scenario was that if 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 a group wanted something if they wanted something um, to convey to the church population or that, there were, there are were all of these different departments. the the website people would say, well, if you wanted a website, this is what we could do. If you wanted an app, you would say, you know, go to the app department. If you wanted a publication, you went to the publication department. if if you if you wanted this so, so so if you wanted an event you go to the event if you wanted a film you went to the film and and what what the opportunity i had was to work with some incredible people to kind of say how could we change that kind of experience to where if there was a if there was a client group think of it a client group and they said this is our need that 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 there was a process where you could go through and you could say so so with all of these different offerings how could we do that and and in what ways could it be integrated you know if you uh, uh you do it at one time so if you were going to make a film how could that film be applied to an app or to a website or to a publication or so they created what was uh what uh elder holland said was uh was the most significant change in the, in the church organizationally and in, in decades is they created a publication services department so it provided the services so it was end to end with exactly what you said w- what were the processes and and what were the different expertises that were needed so instead of going from department to department there was a single process and, and a, a team aligned to to help that. And, and amazing. And you can see it in in websites and apps and all kinds of things. It's just, it's, it, to me, it's a joy because many of the people who were actually on that design team are now the leaders of these respective groups that are, are really process-centric in publication services. So it was, to me, a joy in giving back. And and so, wh- whether you're a nonprofit, a faith-based, whether you're a startup, whether you're uh, whoever you are, uh, this is an incredible tool for accelerating uh, performance.
0: And how long were you working on that project? Just to give us a sense for these timetables.
1: So that that project might have been uh, might have been a six month project. Um, there's something really important, Nate, in terms of thinking about this. There was a piece of research that that was done by uh, uh, one of my good friends. Uh, did was working with a McKinsey organization, and what they were interested in was uh, was to what extent did great strategies actually get implemented that they had, and to their surprise, what they found was was seventy percent of the strategies that that were researched. Never achieved the objective that they had or or got, and so the, their notion was was well why why didn't these seventy percent? And they found that the primary reason wasn't some statistical piece of data that that existed that they missed. The primary reason that they had was they never captured the hearts and minds of the people that needed to do it. So one of the very important aspects of design is, is uh, how do you capture the hearts and minds of the people who actually are going to implement this? So when you think about duration of a project, in in many cases, you can do things fairly quickly, but will you have captured hearts and minds of the people that have? So so in any design project that I, I work on, that there are two aspects that happen in parallel. One is a great design process, but the other is how are we working on capturing hearts and minds? How are we preparing people for change? So uh, that's a great question that you ask.
0: And we're going to spend some more time on capturing hearts and minds.
1: That's right. That, that, is, uh, that is our fifth smooth stone. So, so yes, uh, it, it, it was a huge aha for me is that, that that learning, and I'm grateful. And you've seen it in terms of your research. I mean, it's published anywhere. You j- just Google and it's all over 70% of, you know, uh, mergers and acquisitions don't achieve their objective that they had, um, you know, quality programs. It, it's really, you got to do, you have, you have great tools, which I think SmoothStone number two really talks about, but you've you've got to capture hearts and minds along the way.
0: Okay, so I think we're on smooth stone number three.
1: Smooth stone number three. Um, if if I could, there were two additional thoughts that I had in terms of smooth stone number two. Um, two sort of secret sauces. I we we both love secret sauces, right? So one secret sauce is is that when you think about a process. It it begins and ends with the customer. So, so whoever the customer is, it's like in the bakery, the you know the the individual who wants the wedding cake or the whatever. It starts with that, but but each each state state change or each sub process, you know, it's. You know the the customer actually cares about raw ingredients, cares about batter, cares about the cake, cares about decorated, cares about you know the uh, <clears throat> cares about it being packaged, cares about it being uh, delivered, cares about. It. So so one thing gets lost is is or one of the beautiful things is connecting always to the customer. The second thing that secret sauce is is to talk in the language of the product. Not in the piece of machinery that's making it, you know, like uh, uh, like spoons or bowls or you know, it's we're mixing, we're 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 mixing the ingredients. We're so those those are just nuances that are so critical to that. If I may, in terms of going back to that uh, the the notion of categorization of work, if you were a specialty bakery. And you were thinking of those ten sub-processes, each one state change. Not all of them are created equal. And if you okay. thought about fifteen to twenty percent of them are your competitive work, you would you would certainly say that decorating the cake would be one of those, right? Whereas getting raw ingredients, you know, you probably have the same access to anybody else, or mixing bowls, or or <clears throat> or a way to heat. The, the batter. But decorating it is where the magic occurs. And it could be in the way that it's it's delivered, set up, uh, choreographed, whatever. So you, you want to be able to understand that not all work is created equal. And you want to know where, getting back to smooth stone number one, the differentiation occurs. That's why process follows strategy. So I think that that, you know, is something, some secret sauces there. So smooth stone number three. Smooth stone number three is uh, probably the one that anchored me in the beginning. Um, learning from incredible people like uh, Bill Dyer and and uh, Bonner Ritchie and Paul Thompson and others, the the notion of being perfectly designed to get the results that you get, and having a framework that helps you think that thing through. And and I was fortunate in early in my career to <clears throat> to learn from from Herb Stokes, who had, was one of the pioneers at Procter and Gamble in in creating um, high performance teams and and what what they had leveraged Procter and Gamble, who was one of the leaders in this, they had leveraged some work that had done at, at Harvard um, by Dick Walton. And he was one of the early writers in our field. And he wrote, he wrote a couple of articles, uh, work, uh, work innovations in the, in the US, the United States, and from control to commitment. So pioneering articles that said that the design choices that you make in an organization have an enormous impact on, on the culture that you have we we didn't use the c word we talked about behaviors and and attitudes and things like that but but it's really the culture and and kind of framed that at the same time there was a, an incredible professor that was at wharton later went to usc uh jay galbraith and he wrote one of the early books on organization design and and he he uh delineated you know six or seven Specific types of design choices, like uh, information systems and people systems, and that, and we added to that and and came up with a, a framework which we refer to as the organizational systems design model, which is a which is a, a framework that has four components to it. It it has a component that says, so what's happening in your external environment what are your results today at the other what's the culture that drives that results and then 10 categories of choices like your mission guiding principles uh, your strategies your goals and objectives your processes your structure your uh, your decision making and information system your people systems your reward systems and your renewal system so 10 categories or levers that you can you can you can move to influence your the culture that you've defined that you need to have in order to do that. And what's what's terrific about the framework um, Nate is that that it, it it is a framework that helps you analyze organizations um, and design organization. It's a descriptive model, not a prescriptive. It doesn't tell you one specific choice. It says, here's the category of choices that you have. So how's this play out in organizations? Oftentimes, someone would say to me, you know, we need to change the organization. We need to change this or that. And so the, the methodology and approach that we use is organizational form, design choices that we have, follow process, which follows strategy. So what you want to do is you want to nail your strategy down first. And we talked about those strategic intent statements and what they consist of, particularly the marketplace positioning and uniqueness. And and then what processes then align with that strategy? So, for example, if you were in Apple, you would be emphasizing as your competitive work, the, the product development, right? The innovation around that. Whereas if you, were, if you were Walmart, you would be thinking uh, about your supply chain, right? If you were Nike, you would be thinking about your demand creation. So those are our critical processes to what their defined strategy is. Well, now we're talking about organizational form. Organizational form are, are the elements of this organizational systems design model, the OSD model, that there are 10 Ten categories of choices that you, as an architect and a designer of an organization, have at your purvey to to really uh, think about how they would influence or drive the kind of culture that you believe will uh, uh, and create great net promoter scores, great financial results, great operational results, great engagement. So. So smoothstone number 3 is is really about um the these organizational design choices and and uh and reinforcing we get what we design for and it's an incredible tool for both analysis how are we today which we might refer to as current state but we all might, might look at in terms of future state where do we want to be and it's it's just a uh, just a a, a great um, a great tool and and such a, a rich area for for people to think about here. So,
0: yeah, this is one that I think about a lot. So, I've really tried to embrace this idea of organizations are perfectly designed to get the results that they get. So, if you want different results. You got to think about changing the design. So often you know people just think like, oh it's it's you know it's a motivation issue. people are lazy. I just need to talk to them. I just need to hold them accountable. Well, what about the overall design? What is your mission? What's your strategy? What guiding principles do you have in place? And just as a simple example of this, when I was on the football team uh, at BYU, the special teams as we talked about were struggling. Well one of the design choices for special teams is if you were selected to a special team, you had to show up to practice 20 minutes early. So guess what? Now that's it's like a punishment. Showing up to special teams is a punishment because you got to show up early. So I specifically remember talking to coach, you know, we're trying to change the design and trying to improve special teams. I said, coach, it's a punishment to be on special teams. What if we move the regular meetings early and then special teams is later so that you're there anyway? So you might as well be in special teams meeting rather than having to show up early. So a simple design change... That yeah, that wasn't the ultimate. You know, that that didn't take us from 100th to you know 20th nationally, but it was a small thing that helped. So how do we change the special teams? How do we improve performance? Well, we change the design. We don't just you know think about oh, we're just going to give a pep talk and and motivate people. We're going to change the entire design of the system.
1: Yeah, great, great example. Great, great example.
0: One of my other favorite pictures that I have of yours is the uh, the picture of the mechanical arm. So, you know, the mechanical arms in roads that block traffic, you know, so you could think of mechanical arm for a, a train and you have this, this picture that I love where it's just like this one lane road and there's a mechanical arm there. And uh, maybe you could describe the picture from there. It looks like, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. It's a great picture. Uh, it, it has a mechanical arm, that limits uh, the the traffic on on this particular street and so the the picture shows that uh, to either side of the road there is a grassy area and there happens to be snow on the grassy area and it shows that there are tire marks going around the the particular gate that existed there. So people weren't paying attention to to the gate. So so one would argue it was perfectly designed to perfectly designed to get the results that they were getting.
0: Yeah, there's no barrier there, right? Like if, if, they, if there's if there's a mechanical arm and a wall on either side, then you have to wait for the mechanical arm. But if there's no barrier, of course, you've designed the system where people are just going to go around it. I, I teach business ethics. And so one of the things I do when I give exams is I say, you know, okay, everybody spread out as far as you can away from each other, because we know that if people are close together, they're going to be more likely to look on somebody's paper. So we're designing a system for cheating. If, if you know, you're Wells Fargo and, you know, most customers at your bank have two or three... You know, products with you, and you come up with this great idea that everybody needs to have eight products, and you develop and adopt this slogan of eight is great, and you push the managers to make sure that every customer at your bank has eight products. Well, what's going to happen? You've designed a system where, even though the customers don't need eight products, you know, some customers only need two or three products checking account, credit card, savings account. If you're forcing your managers, to create eight products for each customer, what are they going to do? Well, they're they're going to create, in many cases, out of thin air, eight products, and and you've created this huge financial fraud at Wells Fargo that you know makes them liable for billions of dollars because they designed a system that got that organization was perfectly designed to get the results that it got.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. That is a great example. Um. Let me talk about, there are these 10 categories of choices, right? And and we could spend a whole semester or more talking about, you know, every one of them. But let me share a couple of secret sauces here in terms of, so one of the elements I talked about is structure. You know, how you organize people around, the you know, in, a, in an organization. And what I mentioned before is organizational form follows process, right? So when we think about when we think about uh, the design of an organization, there are uh, two distinct things that I want to talk about. One is at a high level, how do you how do you design an organization? So let's imagine that you and I were meeting with someone and they were uh, and they were interested. We're a fast growing organization. We've got all of this. Uh, Help us sort of think through, you know, how we might organize for the future. Well, I have three levels of design that I talk about. Level one says that since we talked about and anchored that all organizations have processes, right? So if all organizations have processes, then all organizations need, those processes need to have owners. So if you have an organization and you you have a demand creation process, which might be in traditional sense, marketing and sales, it was so who owns the creating demand? You know, demand, meaning that people make orders or if you had a product development process, who owns the product development process? One throat to choke, lapel to pin the rose on, whatever analogy that you want to have, who's accountable? who's accountable for that process. So, so what we work really hard with organizations around if is defining what their overarching processes are. And, and most organizations have a strategy process, they have a product development process, they have a demand creation process, and they have some sort of operation supply chain order fulfillment process, and maybe some sort of development process if they're Uh, about de novos and and acquisitions. And then they have three enabling processes, HR, finance, and IT. So if those are your processes that you have, who owns those processes? So that's level one kind of design is, is make sure if you have processes, you have owners of that. The, the worst thing is where you have two people and and it's not clear who owns it and I thought Nate did it and I think no it, who owns and is accountable for that process. Level two is is where one of the fun areas is, is says okay, now that we've talked about our processes so so what's the next level of design? And there are four or five categories that that are are really fun to look at in terms of thinking about what's the next level of design. So one of those levels of design could be we're going to organize around particular customers. We're going to organize one great company that I look at is is they've organized around global accounts. These These are accounts that are everywhere in the world. And so they want to be seamless with that account, whether it's in Australia, Japan, whether it's in, in Belgium, or whether it's, you know, wherever it is, we service them. So, and then they have a, a, a next level of accounts, which they call uh, enterprise accounts. And then they have SMB, small and medium business. So, so they've chosen to organize around the uniqueness of their customers. Another option in terms of thinking about organization is geography. We're gonna, we're gonna be, we're gonna organize around Americas, Asia Pacific, around Europe. So, so, or we're gonna organize around the West Coast, East Coast, Central, you know. So geography is one of those. Another option to think about organization is around products. What are the products that we organize around? If you're a product-centric organization, uh, you know, w- one of my clients is, uh, is uh, Colgate. So they have oral care. They have uh, pet nutrition. They have liquids. So, so you could organize your, your particular, like their product development, a- around those specific types of products. You could also organize around platforms, you know what are you, what are the platforms that you have? If you if you think about an Amazon, an eBay, a uh, PayPal, you you think about you know what that that we we offer platforms for customers where they can order whatever they want, right? So what are the platforms that we might have? Um, there there might be something around technology. So if you were in the semiconductor business or something. And you had a particular process technology that was used that that you you might use that. So so the notion here is you you think about trade-offs in in choosing this second level design. I'm willing to trade off to be focused on customers and knowing what their u- uniqueness is. I'm willing to trade this off by by being able to focus on this. And, and so the notion is is that um, is that you're constantly thinking about w- which of those things because they all are at play, right? If you're thinking they're all at play, but but which are more important.'m I'm, I'm willing to trade off being focused on customers so that they have a single point of contact, e- even though it might be perceived not as efficient, in terms of the operations it it solidifies the long term value of that particular customer you know and and so how do you choose to how do you choose to organize at that second level and what are the trade offs you're willing to make on that is really to me a really fun part of the design because you're you're constantly thinking about what oh so what was our strategy you know, what are our processes? So how do we think that we, we might organize uh, around that? So let's go back to the bakery, if I could use an example. So we, we, we've we talked about having an order-to-cash process. Somebody owns that. Okay, that's the highest level. The next level, how do we organize these 10 sub-processes? Do we have one team that owns all 10 or do we have a team that's responsible for the the uh, getting orders? Another team for the procurement, uh, mixing and baking. Another one for decorating, and another one for ha- what? How do we choose to? Org- do we ha- organize uh, around around products? Muffins, uh, cakes, uh, breads. Uh, so 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 is that the way? Do we organize around uh, geographies, the the West Coast, the East Coast? You know, so so you think about the the organization options that you have, and and hearkening back to your categorization of work and your process and your overall strategy, what was your uniqueness? then you can align with that trade-off notion around those options. um so that's the second level of design. does that make sense in terms of that you have these options that are available to you at that level.
0: yeah and what i love about your framework is it helps people be thoughtful about the decisions they're making. you're not saying there's one right way. you're not saying, you know, we need you know, all the best companies orga- organize around geography, all the best companies organize around product. No, we got to be thoughtful. And and so that's where you talk about how the system is important. What is your strategy? Because that will then affect, you know, what sort of processes you have in place.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the there is a third level of design, which will lead us into our, you know, our discussion on a uh, smooth thumb number four. But the third level of design uh, goes back to one of the early principles that I I learned in graduate school. And Lawrence and Lorsch at Harvard wrote an article, or wrote actually a book and several articles on, on saying in terms of design, and this is in the early days of thinking about design, as they said, what do you choose to differentiate on? And once you've chosen to differentiate on that, how do you choose to integrate? What are the things that you choose to integrate that? So let's say that we were working with an automobile company and the automobile company had um, a a number of different branded cars. You know, they might have a minivan, they might have a Jeep, they might have a sedan, they might have, you know, uh, a luxury car. Let's imagine that they said, you know, that, that we have these brands that we have. Well, Using the Lawrence and Lorch notion of integration, you would say, are there some things though with these brands that ought to be similar? You know, should, should they have a similar battery? Should they have a similar um, um, uh, music um, uh, machine? Should they have a similar drivetrain? Should they have similar wheels? Should they have... And so when you think of that, if you said... Well, it would be too costly to have a different drivetrain for every different brand that we have. It'd be too costly to have uh, uh, a, uh, a battery or or uh, the sound machine that we have, or or the, the the that just doesn't make sense. These are business essential kind of things. So the so the notion the the notion that we think about there is is on those things where there ought to be some sort of integration, what if you use communities of practice to share knowledge across those different brands that, that they were the, they were uh, people who were paying attention to drivetrains were actually inside the brand, but that they've had a, a community of practice where they worked across the brands to develop standards, uh, tools, um, improve processes, uh, have measures, so that they they collaborate across the organization where they need to cra- collaborate across the organization. So communities of practice are 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 such a powerful tool to facilitate knowledge diffusion. So, so again, my my what I'm hopeful that I'm highlighting here is that when you think about the structure piece of, of the organizational design elements, there are three levels of design. The, how do we choose to organize around our processes? Because we just defined them earlier. What's the next level design, which is really a fun area to look at and, and how it needs to align to your strategy. And then the integration mechanism around knowledge. The The, aside from those three the most powerful thing that I will share with you is and and I wrote about it in a team of leaders is is that my love for teams which was generated from my privilege of working with Bill Dyer and being his teaching and research assistant and 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 him being such an incredible mentor and moved to you know as he called it you know colleagues although, although I always held him in higher esteem for what he had contributed to me. Is the notion, Nate, that that like you experienced in your team and their football team, and you've experienced that there are stages of, of development. There are different stages of development. And one of the incredible things that I learned is that in thinking about thinking about a team and thinking about that. Leadership is a set of activities that can be shared and that that teams could actually individuals and team could actually be more self-directing, more self-managing. They don't have to leave their their brain at the door. They they can they can they can participate in decisions that make, you know, uh, around their team. And there are some 12 specific leadership activities that can be shared, but there are stages of development. So stage one of development might be that the formal leader deals with each one of their people one-on-one. Imagine if you were planning a a vacation and mom is the one who tells each of the the members of the family, this is what we're going to do. Think of stage two is, is where at a family council or at a dinner table or whatever, mom says what or dad says. What, what would you like to do? We're planning on going to Idaho and we're going to do the, what are your inputs on that? In, in an organizational form is that that formal leaders hold scrums or huddles or staff meetings or 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 what mechanisms where it brings people together and they discuss that in those those team or position meetings. Stage three is a great stage. In, and that's where a couple of people, uh, on the team step up and begin to do what they saw the leader at stage one and stage two do they begin to step up just like you stepped up and and selected team members you did some assessment of of where the team was and and that that begins to move the formal leader to more of a coach than than directing that so that's like a, a family member and and you've got terrific kids, one of your kids saying, hey, dad, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to plan our Wednesday when we go to Disney World or something like, sure, you you plan it to, we'll be great. Stage four is, is where most of the team members can do at least one of those leadership activities. So most of them are being able to step up. Two great things happen there. One is the formal leader uh, is, is can be freed up to now do higher order work and that they are valuable as a coach to these individuals that are doing. So this is like, you know, many of the family members are participating in planning the vacation and and parents are freed up to do uh, other activities while the kids are planning. Stage five is the team is really self-managing. They're able to do uh, all of the, the leadership activities and the, the leader of the of the team is freed up to do higher order things, maybe lead multiple teams or, or work on special projects. In this particular case, mom and dad enjoy the 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 kids having great plans together. And so so my experience, and you probably saw this on the football team, is is that a a, a team can be at uh, at different stages. Of development, um, you know, in 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 terms of as you thought, your leadership team is that that you with special teams could be at a different stage than than the team that was probably organizing um, service projects or the team that was helping on on the academic side. So I think it's an important thing to to have a framework of stages to development. So. Those are some secret sauces that, that I think can be enormously powerful as uh, as we think about organizations.
0: And I think it's also powerful for me to think of this in terms of family and, and all of these uh, design choices and systems apply to every organization you're a part of, whether it's you know a work organization, nonprofit, religious or even just the family base. So trying to help the kids progress from a stage one, you know, stage one on the leadership development model to a stage three, stage four, stage five, where now they have more ownership and can help improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the family organization. Well, you mentioned, uh, you hinted at, uh, smooth stone number four, a number of times in that last discussion of systems and processes. So, um, do you want to go into stage or excuse me? Do you want to go into smooth stone number four?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would love to. So I, I shared the story, the personal story, that um, that I worked for Standard Oil of Indiana, um, sold under the Amoco brand, as merged with BP um, many years later. But, um, and, and that was such a great experience. But understanding the great principle that a happy wife is a happy life. You know, and and could you do what you do in a warmer climate? And having the, the incredible experience of meeting Dr. Federico Fijin and and having the privilege of working with him at Xilog. At and and um, there was a fundamental difference in, and you lived in Silicon Valley, so you felt this when you were here. There was a fundamental difference when when talking about assets. When I came to Silicon Valley, when I was at at the energy company, when they talked about assets, they talked about refineries, chemical plants, offshore uh, drilling rigs, uh, uh, platforms, uh, uh, onshore drilling rigs, pipelines, crude oil. When I came to Silicon Valley, uh, Nate, they were talking about people. They were talking about, you know, what jobs in Wozniak were doing, what... What's happening at HP? What's happening at at Silicon Graphics? What's happening? You know the it, the conversation was w- was about people and ideas. N- nobody was talking about brick and mortar. I mean, yes, there was brick and mortar, but nobody was talking about brick and mortar. They were th- talking about the the various clubs. Where where bright people got together and they were sharing ideas of of what was happening, it was uh, you know and I'm sure you you experienced that at, at at Stanford being here. It was just so different, the conversation that it had. So so I was thinking you know if I'm going to help Federico, you know and Manny Fernandez was a, 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 an incredible leader at the. Same time and if I'm going to help these guys, I, I've got to know something about knowledge. So something a, a, about knowledge that is 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 a a way to to how do we create knowledge? How do we how do we share knowledge in in a way that's uh, that's unique? And so that that sent me on a whole journey. A whole journey I, I referred to earlier, Ned Herman, who had done this pioneering work at GE on on the brain and how people learn, and he formed a company, Herman uh, um, International, and and uh, thinking about the the how people learn and and process information, because I I I began to think if if knowledge sharing, as you referred to earlier, is the purest source of competitive advantage, because I could clearly see that happening here. And uh, my friend, Dave Ulrich, who who you know, and, and who's done amazing work in human resources, one day he shared with me when he was doing some work with us and with one of the companies in the Valley here, he shared with me a, a little equation and the little equation had um, sort of uh, d times d, d times d was was discovery, and and the other d was diffusion. And he said, if you if you measured how good is an organization at discovering ideas, and had a, a ten point scale, ten being high, one being low, and and how good are they at Diffusion, that is, sharing and applying knowledge across organizational boundaries. He said, most companies, and and I've done this hundreds of times with clients, said, how good are you at at discovery? Oh, yeah, we're pretty good at that. We might be a seven, working on an eight. When I say, how good are you at sharing the knowledge across organizational boundaries? You know, uh, Colgate at one time had 57 different plants. You know, uh, National Semiconductor, who I worked with, had 25 different plants, or some large number of plants. If you if you said if something was learned in Scotland, to what extent did that get shared with uh, uh, Malacca, you know, Malaysia? Well, it just didn't happen. It it just didn't happen, and and we began to say. So if you were a seven on on discovery, and you were, uh, you know, you were a a one, or, or, or on, or on diffusion, which one are you going to work on? Well, if you if you worked on, if you worked on the discovery and got it up to eight, you, you, you improve a little bit. But what if you went from a one to a two? Or a one to a three, you know, you what if you went and you were as good at diffusion, you know, a, a seven, you know, 250% performance improvement. So what it became was a, a great tool to to share, particularly the engineers, you know, in terms of thinking about knowledge capability. If we could if we could build on the discovery. If we could build on the discovery, but we could we could actually share knowledge better and go up that wow. Well, and and so that that deals with culture. It deals with um, uh, learning, thinking, and learning preferences. Uh, if you were going to present something, and as Ned Herman would say, and and uh, and and. Her daughter, who runs the company, and grandson, you know, if 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 you could present something, knowing their preference, you know, they're going to get it really quick. If you don't know their preference, you look for clues on top ta- on terms of how they might um, love to learn. Um, and one way that I do that, one way that I do that is I, um, a fun exercise is I ask people. You know, tell me about your you know, your weekend. Tell me about your weekend. So, Nate, if if someone said, Oh my gosh, we had a great weekend. We made a list of all the things that we wanted to accomplish. We time sequenced them, then we prioritized them. We allocated them out to the family members periodically during the week. We we weekend, we reviewed how we were doing. That that's tells you about the thinking and learning preference of one. But what if the person said, oh my gosh, we had a great weekend. We invited friends and family member. We asked them to bring their favorite ethnic dish. We sat around, we talked story, we did Pictionary, we did some karaoke. It was such a bonding experience. Do you talk to those two people the same way? Yeah, no. Or what if somebody said, oh my gosh, we had an incredible weekend. We got Groupons, which were 50, uh, 50% off on on uh, theater tickets. We had some Outback Steakhouse uh, um, cards that had money on them. We probably saved $100 this weekend, you know, different. Or what if uh, somebody said, you know, we got up really early in the morning and, and we went up to the the top of Mount Omanum and and we watched the sun come up and oh my gosh it was so spectacular seeing the lights there so 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 the, we all have preferences in terms of how we process information so what if we knew what those process what what those preferences are or we had clues or if we didn't have clues then could could we present things in what they talk about in a whole brain way meaning that if if we're about competing on knowledge then, then, why shouldn't we target the messaging that we have to thinking and learning preferences that people have? At the if you're giving a talk, you know, can you can you talk in all four? Can you have some facts? Can you have some steps? Can you tell some riveting stories? Can you use a a, a metaphor to help or a picture or something that you have? So that's an aspect of it. But I think that the fundamental thing that a, a great friend of mine, Bill uh, Bill Snyder, uh, 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 partnered with uh, Etienne Wagner, and they wrote the pioneering article in Harvard Business Review on communities of practice, and also a book on communities of practice, which they said have been around for forever. Not the books, but the concept of of, of midwives helping one another in the birthing of of children, the knowledge sharing that's happened. So like we talked about in Smoothstone number three is that there are design elements. There are design elements that are really important. And I found that one of the most valuable design elements that exists happens to to be communities of practice. Organizing communities of practice uh, uh, around what the practice is. So if you have team members in a team, but but they are they and they are doing maintenance work on the team. So who are other people who do maintenance work where they can share um, uh, best practices, tools, uh, ways to select uh, uh, new team members, ways to develop team members, things that they might use in terms of measures. So so the notion of this Lawrence and Lawrence that I talked about, the integration, having, having organizing or facilitating the organization of communities to natural get together. Now, fortunately, today we have we have technology that that is so incredible. Uh, I'm working with uh with oral surgeons who, who are the sort of the pinnacle of the dentistry, you know, and, and they use WhatsApp. And and they share across boundaries because they're 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 in 34 different practices, but but they're posting. Here's what we're doing, here's a question that I have. And and people are jumping on these these technologies to share. And th- this wasn't what it was like in Kansas when I yeah. was <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think this is. The, the, the ability to discover and diffuse knowledge uh, to you, like you say, knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage. That's one of your smooth stones. It is so hard to overstate how important this is. You can imagine, you know, in organizations, it's like, why is, uh, you know, John such an incredible leader? And the response oftentimes is uh, he's just John's just different. Well, what is it about Stacy? that you know why is Stacy just number 1 in the company in sales and retention and satisfaction uh cuz Stacy just works really hard and so just even thinking about one of the projects we've worked on you know we get the the question what are these top managers doing different well we go study them and we find out you know here's 80 things that they're doing different yeah sure they work hard and and yeah sure they're different but it's 80 little things that they're doing that add up to one big thing. So now that's the the discovery piece. So now we've discovered it. How do we actually then diffuse it? Cause like you're saying, if, you know, if, 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 if our learning ability and diffusion is, you know, we're, we're an eight at discovery and a one on diffusion, we multiply those together. That's eight. If we improve discovery by one and we go up to nine, well now, you know, we improve by one, but if, if we have really good discovery at an eight and we have really good diffusion at an eight, multiply those together, that's 64, now we're really making progress and and so thinking about not only how do we discover, but how do we diffuse that information and to your point, knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage.
1: Yeah and and as you you know, many of the organizations they they use this as part of their secret sauce. You know, one of the great things about bronchominanol, which there are there are so many great, it was as soon as he learned this, he he saw that at Brigham University and in Virginia the, the the notion of competing on knowledge, that if the coach knew how how their position group members learned individually and collectively, they could actually teach in their learning impressions that accelerated that. And imagine if you had a ball game on Thursday night or Friday night versus every Saturday, you have to accelerate the speed to which you learn, right So having having that kind of knowledge makes a, a huge difference so
0: yeah well, I've been I, I I think about the HBDI and trying to tap into learning preferences and so when I you know teach lesson, I try to think okay, you know, some people are really going to want to hear stories. Some people are really going to want the data. Some people, you know, they're, they're going to want the the steps and routines. And, and so trying to think about all these different preferences and then presenting information that includes all of these aspects, I've, I found it to be much more effective than just trying to focus on one.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to the Herman people and, and the great family that they have in and and all all of the people for that influence. It, it's something that I use every single day.
0: Okay, should we transition to the fifth and final smooth stone?
1: Fifth and final, I, I shared the, the information earlier uh, about the uh, epiphany that came from 70% of, of strategies, change projects, uh, mergers and acquisitions, all of this. Never achieve the objective that they had, and the perplexity of thinking about the millions and billions of dollars that have been spent on strategies and change projects and quality programs and all of that, and and thinking, thinking about, so, so why was that? And and as I shared, the research said it wasn't that they missed some some factoid. You know, it wasn't that they missed, missed some fact that was associated with it or or they didn't find this. It was about hearts and minds. And I can remember my my early experience at Standard Oil of Indiana, and when they had consultants come in, they, they would come in and they'd package, you know, a beautiful package. They'd give it to the, you know, the senior officer or whatever, and they would put it on the credenza and I would think, you know well whatever happened about that, you know, and and the top leaders were were happy, to, but no, but the real issue was, you know, was implementation, right? Capturing hearts and minds. So 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 this just this this was such Nate, this was such an epiphany for me. But but I went back and I began to look at. I I shared with you that I had this incredible experience of playing football for three Hall of Fame football coaches. Ninth grade, uh, Mike McCormick, who played at Cleveland and later was the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, president of Seattle, Seattle Seahawks. And then the president of the Carolina Panthers. He was my ninth grade coach, oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dick Birdie, who was six time uh, state champion there at, uh, at both at Shawnee Mission West, where I was. I was on the formative years, we were in that. But then at Lawrence, which you know, has been a powerhouse there. And then of course, um, uh, you know, Lavelle Edwards. And and I think about what Lavelle did in his style, you know, of capturing hearts and minds. He's, he said that he selected, I did a project in graduate school. Uh, that he selected his, his coaches, the best coaches that he could. And what he wanted to do was formulate a strategy. And as you remember, knowing the history of Brigham Young, since it was difficult to get great running backs, he said, what are the other options? And one of those was to throw the football, right? And so he went out and got a guy named Dewey Warren to to from Tennessee to call the Swamp Fox to, to come in and teach. Uh, Gary Shady, how to throw the football, and and who looked like jo- Joe Namath, and then the whole quarterback factory that and Tom, <clears throat> Holmgren and and others that that came Tolner who came in and were part of that. But he was capturing hearts and minds of leaders by not telling them what to do, but providing a framework right for that. Um, Capturing hearts and minds is, is that he had this leadership council. I mean, you know, we're talking, we're talking about a long time ago. We're talking about 72, 73, you know, 74. He's he he's way ahead of his time in employee involvement. Now we weren't employees, but we were players, but involving them in in, in that he turned uh, minor discipline over to the the captains we had great captains and they were the ones if if in in the old days it uh, if if you broke the rules you you tried not to get caught i mean even at brigham young university tried not to get caught and um, and if you got caught you always knew somebody else who was got off easier than you did mm-hmm. right but imagine that he flipped the switch and and said you're accountable to your team captains that changed the game yeah and and, and so i think little things about um uh, hearts and minds um you know ha- how is it that we ignite hearts and minds uh, um we uh in in one change project that we had we had Um, we use the the beat writers kind of notion of of getting the pulse of the organization we had uh, we actually uh, formed a prepare for change team so parallel to the design work that we talked about we had a prepare for change team who who were out amongst you know their peers getting the pulse what what are you hearing what do you need to know what are you doing that um, um that, that that using um using whole brain um, graphics and metaphors and analogies the, the you know we use the the in search of the great design using kind of the Indiana Jones kind of notion that we had. So we we thought about um uh thinking of a calendar. And a, and a calendar thinking about all of the aspects that uh, meetings and events that are going on. And, and how could we connect those uh, those activities? We, I worked on an incredible project with Hallmark. They're not far from you. And, yeah. and they said, you know, we have all this intellectual property here. and and how could we use that to transform? so they took the IT department was a which which was an order taker to one who sat at the table and present here's how we could take use technology to do that and so part of that was they took a calendar and calendar and identified the different dates where natural events were going to occur and how could they plug into that we did the same thing at at, at NASA when they were they were looking at how do they improve communication after the second uh, disaster of the space shuttle? How can we improve communication up and down? And, and we 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 worked on developing a whole communication plan of of uh, what are all of the events and who owns those and how can we utilize that and, and making sure that the communication of what we're what we need people to know is actually happening. So a whole whole design process of of trying to ignite hearts and minds of of involving people in in, in the process where they had uh, I worked with uh, Mars uh, Mars uh, uh, years ago really fun project that they had. What happened with Mars is, is they began to lose market share. There happened to be a uh, uh, an alien movie. You you might be early in your your life, I'm sure. Uh, E.T. E.T. E- 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 well, if you remember, E.T. Um, uh, left on on a, a way to for people could he could find the path was Reese's Pieces. Well, mm-hmm. the E.T. folks had gone to Mars and said said, you know, how, how would you like to do that? And they said, well, we're really not into those kind of films and that sort of thing. So so Reese's Pieces exploded, exploded, actually exploded because all these kids, I hey, hey, E.T. wants said, <laughs> own home, get this. And so, so they said, we need to change our whole strategy. We need to go from big bars and running long runs of the same Candy bar to bite size. You 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 know the bite size now today, yeah. which you you have to change the equipment. You have to change all of this stuff. Well, what they did was they they got their employees together, and and one of the projects was in Chicago, six hundred people, and 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 they had people go into different quiet, uh, different corners, and and they shared. Here's what's happening with the Reese's. Here's what's happening with technology. Here's what's happening. And at the end they said, we want you, there was butcher paper and there was butcher paper on the walls, uh, Nate. And they said, we want you to draw pictures of what you think, uh, of what you think need to n- need to change. And so they did. And, and And then as each group did this, they said, well, this is what the group before you did. And this is what the group before you did. And so it began to captivate hearts and minds. You know, in, in a faith-based calling that I had, I, I I was working with 180 terrific young people, young adults. And so I had to make collages of what it would be like to be part of this organization. You know, it was a way to ignite hearts and minds with, with collages and, and cutouts. And today we would use computers, right, and, and pull different things. But hearts and minds is so critical to success. It's just, it's just, and it's such a fun area to 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 work on. Uh, but it's it's not well thought. Of, you know, it's not at the forefront of of many lead, great leaders are constantly thinking about that. But it's just one of those smooth stones that I I think just keeps on giving.
0: So you've talked about, you know, the three facilitator, three facilitators of long-term memory, music, metaphor, significant emotional experience. And so Bronco thought a lot about this, Bronco Hall when he was trying to uh, redesign the program. And so, you know, we had a, a race to the top of Y Mountain and, you know, that's a, that's a significant emotional experience because it was so difficult. And then he, uh, you know, used the metaphor when we get to the top of, uh, you know, what's the view like from the top? compared to the bottom. Uh, He took us up the Rock Canyon and uh, he had us storyboard or or write, I guess, brainstorm all of the things that was wrong, all the things that were wrong with the program. And, you know, it takes an hour and then we read them off and throw them in the fire and burn them. And then we write, you know, what do we want to change about the program? Uh, So these are all, all geared towards capturing hearts and minds. And it was incredible to see him do that and totally get the hearts of the minds of the players redesign the office space using visual management so when when we first moved into the new building all the walls were white and they were white for a year and then bronco came in and with your help talking about visual management uh, we had all the murals and the nfl walls and the great plays of past games and great players and that again just all capturing hearts and minds.
1: Yeah, that's a. Now, I I think I remember who the first person, the first person to reach the top of the Y. (laughs) Didn't they isn't that?
0: Oh, and and, and let me tell you, uh, one of my greatest accomplishments was uh, racing to the top of the Y. And I had Aaron Gordon right behind me. Uh, But, you know, running up a mountain for a mile it was uh, you know, talk again, talk about a significant emotional experience racing up a mile uh on the mountain.
1: And more than a thousand feet elevation.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you can imagine, you know, if, if I tried that today, it, obviously it just, you know, it'd be it would be death. It would, you know, I'd die of a heart I'd die of a heart attack for sure. Uh just a couple other things that um kind of bits of wisdom that I've heard from you over the years that maybe we could just wrap up with. Um Frustration is almost always a result of violated expectations. And most expectations are implicit.
1: Yeah. When the first class that I had, again, significant emotional experiences, first class with Bill Dyer. He said, uh, he said, here's what I've learned. So here you're sitting at the feet of the master, right? You know, here's what I've learned. And and so he's a team building expert. In these, in, and he's and couples or teams and 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 he said you know here we are poised with our pin you know frustration is almost always a result of a violation of expectations and most violated expectations most violated expectations are implicit meaning we keep them inside rather than explicit oh my gosh and I, I you know what a powerful, teaching tool. I, I know that, you know, with Chris Ann and I that this is an important because during different stages, kids and and jobs and assignments and places, the expectations change. And so you want to build in a mechanism where you're constantly talking about that. You're always constantly in, and and th- there's no way that I'm perfect. Lots of faults, but but I know I know when when there's frustration. That it's almost always there's an expectation. So, yeah. so we have expectations of ourselves. We have expectations of the other person and how we work together. And it's it's one of the great tools, Nate, that I, I in a in a position that I had in our faith that I uh, I counseled over sixty uh, young couples who were getting married, and and this was such a tool. And I would say, you know. To what extent have you talked about where you're going to go for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Christmas? And they would look at each other like, no, we didn't, uh, you know, how about budget? How about this? How about that? Oh, you know, and so, yeah, no, that's uh, great. Let me so, just say, so- think about the the visual management. I I would be yeah. rem- because a, a great colleague, Stu Liff, who who was a co-author of Team of Leaders, this was his uh, his forte. was He was an artist, and knew that he couldn't support his family, so he he was a, a leader in government and and a project that won the first reinventing government award. But but he was such an influence on that. And the research says that um, eighty percent of what the mind absorbs is visual we remember 10% of what we hear 72 hours later unless it's a significant emotional experience so that notion of 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 making sure your walls your you know whatever you uh, w- when you present whatever you do you try to make it visual so
0: yeah that's great well here's another one that uh, has impacted me the best predictor of future performance is past performance
1: yeah, absolutely. I, um, this was uh, when when I first interacted with Bronco, and he said, "I'm I'm going to to I'm going to be in the Bay Area. I'm going to interview some candidates to be a, 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 a quarterback coach." Uh, and uh, I said, "Would you like to know the best practices and principles?" He said, "I'm all ears." i said well the 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 first and most important principle is criteria based meaning what what if you think about performance models and you think about what are the best practices that a a quarterback coach would need to to exhibit in order to achieve the the critical results they're responsible for you know use that as 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 the selection criteria the second principle that I, I shared with him is the principle of self-selection. That too many times we try to sell people on, on, on a job or a position or whatever it might be, w- which hardly ever pays out. But if you paint the picture around, this is what work is really like. If you like this kind of work, you really like being here. But if you don't like this kind of work, this is not going to be a great. So working real hard. The third principle is the best predictor, which doesn't happen very often for for future performance, is past performance, where past performance replicates what you want in the future. But if you're innovating in terms of your diet design, most likely you're not going to get past experience. So the fourth thing is to actually simulate the work. So one of the great Design elements that that I've I've worked with the organizations on is is creating simulations where people actually have to do what they what they had and the real benefit is that by doing that by by doing what it is they can go oh so this is what I'm going to be doing or they say wow this is what I'm going to do and the other side is you get to see to what degree do they fit. So, uh, yeah, uh, simulations, you cannot select somebody without or promote somebody without simulating, having them simulate the work.
0: Okay, last one, and then we'll wrap up. Um, It's more important to manage our energy than our time.
1: People only bring so much energy into a a work setting. And, And so being able to manage that, both from... If you you think of you're a leader, and and you're working with a team or with the individuals, or you're you're looking at your yourself, what you w- want to do is is say, what are the things that that um, create the positive energy, and what can we do to accentuate that positive positive energy, um, in in terms of um, in terms of their behavior that there was a great psychology today article many years ago that said people, people who come into the office either come in with positive energy or negative energy. And what you want to do is you, you want the people who have negative energy. You want to flip that because they're bringing energy in. You just don't want it to be negative. So you want to put design elements in place to help take that same energy and oftentimes, the use of metaphors and analogies is, and stories is a great way to do it. But I think that the the notion of managing energy, individual energy, was certainly uh, you know a great thing. That um, I went to a place in in Florida, and I think uh, Bronco did also, where there was a whole technology around being in touch with your own energy and and knowing that. Um, Just like in hitting a baseball that you have to store the energy and then release the energy. There needs to be storing energy activities that you do um, on a a regular basis. So whatever those things that that work for you and in managing your energy with with the notion of 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 uh, the positivity Um, is it is an important aspect Um, know, one of the great studies and on the University of Washington did on marriages that stick um, said that their research indicated that that uh, couples who use the we rather than I and saw each other through rose colored glasses and that the glass was always half full uh, uh, had the greatest propensity to stay together and those who did the opposite you know uh, were not so successful so i think the 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 positivity of of energy and and how you build on that you know through compliments and and rather than criticisms not that we don't address improvements but make sure that we we are are managing our own energy and the positivity energy of of the teams and individuals that we work with. So
0: I was talking literally with, last night with my family about that research from University of Washington and the the happy couples. Uh, well, the unhappy couples um, they they track you know the positive to negative um, interactions and it was one to one in the unhappy couples. And in the happy couples, it was five positive for every one negative. So you know, you might think one to one is not too bad, but uh, uh, certainly the positive energy matters a lot. Well, Paul, y- you've given me a lot of your time. Any anything else you want to say as as we wrap up?
1: So uh, I, you know, my yeah, I I want to I'm I'm grateful. Uh, I I have a a lot of gratitude for. The many people that from my parents to having great coaches to um, incredible professors to great colleagues that I learned to with with great, um, uh, great leaders, you know, through my, you know, many different companies that I've had the privilege of working with that I've been able to learn with them and and to be blessed with knowledge about um, five areas, which I call smooth stones, that really do make a difference. And and I'm just so grateful for for being able to sort of, my why is, is to help create great places for people to work, because I know that they take it home with them, and they take it to their PTAs, and they take it to their soccer uh, teams, and they take it to their faith-based organizations, and that by applying these smooth stones, we we create great places for people to work, and that helps create a much better family, neighborhood, um, city, community. So, so I'm I'm grateful, and I'm grateful to you for the privilege that I've had to see your progress over the years. I mean, you know. It, I'm I'm delighted that in some small way, I've had an influence on, on you because you're doing incredible work.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And, and you've had a big influence on me. I'm just so grateful we could talk today, that you could share your decades of experience working with hundreds of organizations, the millions of miles you've traveled, the thousands of hotels you've stayed at, all to collect this information, which... You know, I do believe, and as you say, knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage. I'm so grateful that you're able to share with us, uh, Paul. You were the Marriott School of Management's William G. Dyer Distinguished Alumni Award winner a long time ago. That was 20 years ago that you won that award, and you know, there there were a few um, people that won the award after you, like uh, uh, you know Stephen Covey, and Kerry uh, Patterson, Dave Ulrich. So you're just an incredible company. And I'm just so grateful that you were generous with your time and knowledge today. So thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Well, it's it's just uh, part of giving back, I think, you know.
0: So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickels and Dimes. Paul Gustafson has helped multiple companies grow their revenues from the tens of millions to the billions. And I love his five smooth stones framework. First, strategy is about doing similar activities differently or different activities altogether. Simply doing the same thing as others, but better, is not strategy, that's operational efficiency. But by carefully designing one's mission, vision, guiding principles, core values, and balanced scorecard, companies can identify their uniqueness, and understand what they say no to. Second, organizations are made of processes, and not all processes are created equal. When Paul worked with Federico Fagin, the inventor of the microprocessor, they were able to organize their work around processes, creating clear ownership, which resulted in a 255% performance improvement. When thinking about processes, be clear about who owns each outcome, because if everyone owns an outcome, no one does. Third, you get what you design for. Organizations are perfectly designed to get the results that they get, so if you want to change the results, you need to change the organizational design. For Paul, those design choices fall into 10 buckets, or levers, that can be pulled to improve organizational outcomes. Fourth, knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage. The ability to discover, create, codify, diffuse, apply, and renew knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage. Also, in an organization, it's nearly impossible to over-communicate, and the best predictor of future performance is past performance. Fifth, leadership is about capturing hearts and minds. Too many mergers, projects, and initiatives fail because leaders don't capture hearts and minds. By engaging people with significant emotional experiences, metaphors, and even music, leaders can more effectively capture hearts and minds. In summary, to design a great organization, remember Paul's five smooth stones. It's a simple idea, please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's notes at Natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.